Son, tonight we look after the North Pole while Santa delivers all the holiday goodies. Wooden ponies, dolls, Xfinity. Xfinity? It's only the awesomest internet ever. The whole family can enjoy fast, reliable internet speed and great coverage all at a great value. Plus, advanced security is included at no extra cost with Xfinity XFi and the XFi Gateway. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Choose the speed that works for you. Up to gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. And you're on right now with Jim Dawes on the Mojo 5.0 Radio Network. Your daily journal of news, politics, and culture from an America first perspective. If you want to listen on demand anytime, you can listen on Spreaker, iTunes, TuneIn, and Spotify, and it's your favorite podcast directory. Follow us on Twitter at RightNowJimDawes and send me an email at RightNowJimDawes at gmail.com to, to call into the show and participate in the broadcast. You can reach us at 772-245-0750. Leave a voicemail and if your call is relevant to the topic, we'll use it on a future program. That number again, 772-245-0750. Well, we got a great show lined up for you today. In the second half hour, we're going to be joined by Dan D'Amico. He is the former CEO of Nucor Steel. He was a trade advisor for the Trump campaign and is joining a panel of economic advisors for the administration now. In the first half hour, we're going to talk about the uh, the tragic burning of the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris, France. It's uh, really a a larger metaphor for a collapse of Western civilization and the need for a a renaissance and a rededication to the, the principles and the philosophies that made Western civilization great. We're also going to bring you up to date on the, um, scandal, I guess you would call it, surrounding uh, Ilhan Omar's uh, insistence that any criticism of her uh, speech belittling and denigrating uh, the tragedy of 9-11 amounts to incitement to violence. And we'll also do an update on Landon, uh, the young five-year-old boy that was tossed off a third-store balcony at the Mall of America in Minnesota. just happened to be in Omar's district. She's had very little to say about it. By all appearances, it's a hate crime, but uh, it's not being covered that way. As a matter of fact, all the coverage in the mainstream media has pretty much dried up and gone away. I want to remind you to register to win this Smith & Wesson 380 bodyguard model. It's a fine, fine weapon, perfect for concealed carry and you can register to win by going to mojo50.com slash register to win or you can just go to mojo50.com and click the banner at the top of the page this is a fantastic weapon 380 with a six round clip you can carry one in the chamber for a total of seven rounds it's got a crimson laser sight built into the body 
a matte black finish with a polymer frame and um, a stainless steel. I, I, I got somewhat confused when I was describing it earlier because it is stainless steel, but it's not the shiny stainless steel. It's uh, got a, uh, a blued finish on the stainless. Melonite is what they call it. And uh, you definitely need to go over there and register to win this weapon. You got to be 21 years or older, and um, and get uh, get your registration in before it expires. If you don't want the weapon, go ahead and register to win, and then you can give it to me if you happen to win because we're not reg- uh, eligible to register. So, um, you know, it's a sad day uh, as we come into the Easter weekend. With the visuals of the Cathedral of Notre Dame, one of the holiest places in Christendom, in Paris, France, uh, burning. And uh, it's really a a larger metaphor for the collapse of Christianity in Europe. Paris is all but a secular place. And if you watched Tucker Carlson's show last night, Mark Stein just absolutely knocked it out of the park in his description of what's going on and the the tragedy, uh, not only of the burning of the Cathedral of Notre Dame, but really what it represents um, as an analogy to the collapse of uh, Christianity and Western civilization. And of course, uh, this collapse of Christianity is, uh, has left a void And that void has been filled largely by uh, this cultural Marxism ideology that has required Western civilization to become passive as one institution after another loses confidence in the, um, the future and the value of our history and our culture. And in addition to that, the void that's left is being filled, of course, by huge waves of immigration of, uh, you know, of non-Western people into Europe. And, uh, and really, the writings on the wall, the, the, there's been a rise of uh, nationalist parties in Europe as a pushback to this. I don't know if it's going to be in time to save Western civilization on the European continent. But, um, you know, in Italy, we've had Salvio, um, uh, Salvini, Mario Salvini, and in Hungary, uh, Viktor Orban, um, also in Austria and Poland and in many other places. Finally, um, the peoples are stirring and realizing that these cultural Marxists that they've allowed to take control of their governing institutions or leading them down a path to ruin. But I'm going to play you a clip here. This is Mark Stein on Tucker Carlson's show last night. He says it better than I ever could. Uh, And he's talking about what, um, you know, what this burning of the Notre Dame Cathedral can signify as a metaphor. 
Well, Christendom is in retreat in, in Europe and uh, in France particularly. France ha has actually quite an aggressive uh, belief in secularism and uh, according to some polls, the French are, even by the standards of the modern Western world, among the, the most godless people in that sense. Uh, three years ago, in that terrible summer uh, that began with the Nice uh, truck killings and the, when it seemed as if the entire French state was unraveling, I went to uh, Rouen Cathedral for the funeral of uh, Père Amel, uh, the, the French priest who had his throat cut at, at Mass. And I then went to the Basilica of Saint-Denis, uh, which is uh, in the north of Paris, yeah. where the French kings are buried. And, and basically is a, 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 a Christian museum in the heart of what is now a, a Muslim suburb, in effect. Uh, there's no sense of Christianity out outside the walls of that cathedral. And it was after that that I went to then Notre Dame because I, you do have the sense uh, that a living, breathing faith is just becoming actually a museum, an art gallery, a storage facility. And the French who were on the streets in tears this evening, on the streets of Paris, they're not mourning, I don't think they're mourning just history or architecture or art or culture. They're mourning something else. But what that something else, uh, post-Christian France uh, can't quite identify it. And that's, that's really the conundrum. Uh, when Monsieur Macron says, oh, we're going to rebuild it. Rebuild it for what? Uh, when people right, talk about, oh, right. the heart of France has died. What is in the soul of France? What is this? Is is it just a building or is it something more? What is it indeed? You know, the church uh, was built to glorify God and to um, stand as a enduring symbol of our commitment that, uh, you know, this life is uh, passing and the time we're here needs to be used to lead others uh, to the next life. And um, Stein said it really well uh, when he when he points out that the people that uh, began building this cathedral over 800 years ago knew that uh, they would never live to see its completion the 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 stone um, uh, edifice took over 100 years to build and you know life expectancies back then if you were lived to be 50 you were an old man so they were building something that they knew would uh, they would never see to uh, to completion, but they were uh, doing it because they knew that there was an afterlife, and they were committed to that, and they were committed to to belief in God. That has collapsed in Europe largely, especially in France, and Italy, and the UK, and uh, in the Western European nations. It is starting to stir now, uh, and it is much stronger in the Eastern European nations. And we can only hope that it uh, it has a renaissance and a resurrection in time to save the civilization itself. And the Europeans are not alone, especially in the Catholic Church in the USA. It is uh, it largely collapsed under the constant pressure of these pedophile scandals in the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church uh, is being led and Pope Francis by a cultural Marxist himself. Um, Pope Francis uh, rose up through 
the church of uh, that believed in South American liberation theology, which is a cultural Marxist uh, predicate. Uh, and you know, while he is uh, nominally um, Christian, his number one uh, motivation is uh, is political correctness, and he is all on board with. Oh, flinging open the doors of Europe to, uh, to Muslim immigration and, uh, you know, this belief in climate change as if man on earth could possibly uh, have an effect on this, uh, this creation that God has given us. And in the United States, I'll just cite you one example. Um, at the, the namesake of Notre Dame, the University of Notre Dame in Bloomington, Indiana, where by the way, the homosexual Democrat president uh, candidate for uh, 2020, uh, Pete Buttigieg, Mayor Pete, um, hails from. But at the University of Notre Dame, um, the, the attendees there petitioned the administration, the men of Notre Dame petitioned the administration to put a filter on the Internet access to block porn because they believed that it was uh, ungodly and unfitting for a Catholic university to have, uh, have this filth available um, in the library and on, on uh, the computers of the students. And the, the dean, or the president, I should say, of the University of Notre Dame actually refused to do that, would not react to the student's request to block porn at a Catholic Christian university. And if you want to know why Christianity is in retreat, it's because they they no longer have, outside of uh, many of the evangelical um, Protestant denominations, they don't have a a muscular and robust confidence in their religion, and they they seem not willing to take a stand to defend it. I'm going to comment on the firefighting efforts uh, at Notre Dame on a a later show. They seem to be relatively ineffective. I'm I'm going to take a deeper look into that and see if if Paris, in fact, even had the uh, foresight uh, to pre-plan a firefighting response to uh, to this church burning. But, um, you know, churches have been burning throughout Europe, um, especially in the run-up to the Easter holiday for quite some time. And in Kosovo, um, you know, the, the NATO led by the United States bombed the Serbians in Kosovo and kept them from uh, allowing the place to be a taken over by the Albanian Muslims. The Albanian Muslims uh, have ethnically cleansed that um, former Serbian province and have burned over 150 churches and monasteries. And this is not isolated uh, in many European um, nations now. Churches have been desecrated and and, burned been burned and uh and the notre dame cathedral itself by the way 
has been uh, has been targeted by Islamic terrorists, ISIS, and others. Um, there was a, an attempted bombing of the uh, Notre Dame Cathedral in 2016, and there have been threats made against the cathedral um, repeatedly by the radical Muslims in uh, in France. And all of this raised some suspicions among the faithful in Paris that uh, maybe the construction work that's uh, being attributed to the start of this fire, uh, maybe there's something more. And um, and on Fox News, at least, the, commenta- the uh, hosts over there, Shepard Smith and Neil Cavuto, made it quite clear that they're not going to allow any sort of um, speculation or inquiry into that uh, that possibility, despite the fact of you know the the previous um, is uh, ISIS attempts to bomb uh, Notre Dame. There was actually a uh, an Islamic. Um, there was an arrest of an Islamic terrorist in front of uh, Notre Dame just a year ago, attempting a, a terrorist attack. But I've got a couple of clips here. This is Shepard Smith on his call uh, on his show yesterday. He was speaking with a an elected official in France about the possibility of um, of what caused this fire, and as soon as this uh, this person tried to raise the possibility or even the the suspicion that it could be something other than an accident, Shepard Smith shut him down and hung up on him. Felipe Carcente is on the line with us, a French elected official who is in Paris now. Uh, Felipe, w- what, what have you seen and what do you know? Well, I was um, I was uh, close to the scene when it happened, and now I left the place because I, we want to let people work around it. Everybody is really under shock now in France. I would tell you something. It's um, even if nobody no, no, nobody died. I mean, it's like a nine eleven. It's a French nine eleven, you know, and it's um, it's a big shock. I mean, this uh, church was there for more than eight hundred and fifty years. Uh, even, even the Nazi didn't dare to destroy it. Um, and you need to know that for the past years, we had churches desecrated each and every week in France, all over France. So, of course, you will hear the story about the, the politically correct, uh, political correctness, which will tell you that it's probably an accident. Sir, but sir, sir, I, we're not going to speculate here of the cause of something well, which we don't know. If you have no, observation, if you have observations no. or you know something, we would love to hear it. No, I'm just telling you something. What you need to be ready. To no, sir. Do. We're not doing that here. Not now. Okay. Not on my watch. Okay. Felipe Carcente, okay. it's very good of you to be here. Uh, we're, we're watching the at least partial destruction of a world icon. Notre Dame Cathedral has been burning for two and a half hours. The initial reports we got were that the fire started in a construction zone in the rear. We are thousands of miles away, and the man on the phone with us has absolutely no information of any kind about the origin of this fire. 
and neither do I. Well, neither do you, Shepard, because you didn't want to accept the possibility that your caller may have had information. He was trying to tell you something that you absolutely were unwilling to hear. And just because the fire started in a construction zone, the whole edifice of the church was covered in scaffolding. That in and of itself doesn't prove that it was a construction fire. As a matter of fact, it's been widely reported that there was very little, if any, construction going on on the church when the fire started. And the fact that uh, Shepard Smith was unwilling to even allow his guests to, um, to share any information that he may have had before he shut him down shows that there are certain truths that are just unacceptable. Um, and you wonder if the French authorities determined that this, this, uh, this fire was started in arson, whether they would suppress that as well, because it would be a, um, a truth that would just be, that would rack France that has become no longer a Christian nation, uh, but a sort of a, a hodgepodge of, of um, multiculturalism and especially a large presence of a rest of uh, Muslim, large, large Muslim population. And this sort of thing continued over there on Fox News. Neil Cavuto took a call from none other than Timothy Dolan. He is a cardinal in the United States. And uh, he's a, a regular guest on Fox News, and they brought him on, Neil Cavuto did, to talk about this. And uh, Cardinal Dolan also wanted to talk about the uh, large numbers of um, vandalism and arsons that have taken place in Catholic churches throughout the continent of Europe. And Neil was having none of it. On the phone, Bill, uh, we don't know what started this. We do know the repercussions and what has been left as a result of this. Ruins, and ruins that could, could take some time to fix and make right, and you never can make it as it was. Well, Neil, if it is an accident, it's a monumental tragedy. But forgive me for being suspicious. Just last month, a 17th century church was set on fire in Paris. We've seen tabernacles knocked down. Crosses have been torn down. Statues have been no, we smashed. Don't, we don't know that. We don't know. So if we can avoid what your suspicions might be, I do want to look at what happens. Well, actually, you do know that what Cardinal Dolan just said has happened. We don't know if that's what happened in Notre Dame, but it is, it is certainly a possibility and the larger issue is uh, church arsons and desecrations throughout Europe are, are not uncommon. If you want to take a look, you can go on YouTube and see these uh, these churches being burned and desecrated and invaded. And, and there in France, it's just been a couple of years ago where a, uh, um, a Catholic priest had his throat cut during a church service. So this is a legitimate issue, and the fact that Fox News is uh, just denying any uh, discussion of it is uh, is pretty distressing. Mental tragedy, but forgive me for being suspicious. Just last month, a 17th century church was set on fire in Paris. 
We've seen tabernacles knocked down. Crosses have been torn down. Statues have been no, we smashed. Don't, we don't know that. We don't know. So if we can avoid what your suspicions might be, I do want to look at what happens now. There was a very pricey rebuilding and renovation effort going on that involved a good deal of Catholic fundraising campaigns. I know in this country and abroad, this renovation was paid for up front. So in other words, all the monies were there. And now I'm wondering how much more the Catholic Church commits to this, or do you think now they first want to get to the bottom of it? Well, first they have to get to the bottom of it, and they will rebuild it. There's no question about that. And they certainly the Catholic Church will come up with the money for it. That's not even a question. But uh, I, I, I'm sorry. I mean, when I find out that the Eucharist is being destroyed and excrement is, is being smeared on crosses, Wait a minute, this Bill, is going I on Gary, now. We, we can, we can, Bill, I, I love you, Dale, but we cannot make conjectures about this. So thank you very, oh, I'm very not, much. I'm, Bill, I'm, I'm sorry. Thank you very, very much. I do want to let people know. Neil's just not having it. And uh, apparently the word went out over at Fox News that you will not uh, entertain any notion that this is possible arson because the implications of that would just be too um, dire for people to accept. In the short time we have before the break, I want to remind you of poor little Landon, the uh, five-year-old boy that was tossed off of a third-floor balcony at the Mall of America a couple of days ago. The mainstream media has moved on from this topic and shows no further interest in it. It has all the earmarks of a hate crime, and that is another um, possibility that the media just cannot accept. But uh, I encourage you to go to his GoFundMe page. It's at GoFundMe.com slash LandonPrayers to help the family with uh, this recovery of this poor little boy that uh, was the victim of an apparent hate crime. He's in a full-body cast struggling for his life, and uh, apparently... This is just not uh, the type of things we can talk about. Join us after the break when we'll have Dan D'Amico right after these messages. Whether you're moving in together for the first time. This can be your closet. Or you're a new parent to a little fur baby. Viva Paper Towels can help you maintain a clean home. They're two times more durable when wet compared to the leading value brand. So they clean like cloth, helping you pick up after your new pet in your new home. For an exceptional cloth-like clean, use Viva Towels. Visit vivatowels.com to learn more and start fresh with a clean feeling of home. Need an extra hand with dinner? Just ask your connected home device to fill your pasta pot, and Delta Faucet Voice IQ technology will fill it with the perfect amount of water. Visit deltafaucet.com slash voice IQ to discover more. And you're back on Right Now with Jim Dawes, your daily journal of news, politics, and culture from an America First perspective on the Mojo 5.0 radio network. President Trump promised to reform our disastrous trade deals that have cost Americans billions of good-paying manufacturing jobs and ran up trillions of dollars in trade deficits. Lately, there's been a lot of talk about finalizing an agreement with China to finally open their markets and protect American intellectual property, but we've heard all that before. To talk about this, we're joined by Dan D'Amico, former CEO of Newcore Steel Company and advisor to the Trump campaign. He's chairman for the Coalition for for a Prosperous America and author of American Made, Why Making Things Will Return Us to Greatness, available now on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. 
Dan, thanks for joining us on Right Now. My pleasure, Jim. Thanks for having me. Well, Dan, the economy's booming. We've got record low unemployment. The stock market is uh, replenishing everybody's retirement funds. And for the first time in decades, middle-class American workers are starting to see an increase in their wages, their real buying power. We've had the largest trade deficit in the last month, however, and our economy's uh, future is at risk if we can't finalize some sort of trade agreement with China to, um, to protect the future health of our economy. Uh, what can you tell us about the current state of uh, those trade negotiations? Well, listen, those, those trade negotiations are ongoing. Um, and uh, Robert Lighthizer, the uh, ambassador, USTR, U.S. Trade Representative, um, is leading those negotiations. Uh, there are other people involved in them, but he is uh, the key uh, person that uh, President Trump has put in charge. Uh, I've known Bob Lighthizer for a long time, decades, and uh, I wouldn't want anybody but him fighting this battle for us. I am uh, thoroughly so- convinced that Robert Lighthizer is a, a economic patriot, um, very unlike um, you know most of um, our past trade representatives that uh, have have not done a good job for the American public. What I worry about is the people sitting on the other side of the table from Lighthizer. Uh, they've never kept any deal in the past, and and I don't know why we have such confidence they they would keep keep a deal now. I'm not sure that we have a whole lot of confidence that they will keep a deal. I think that's uh, the very subject of these uh, intense negotiations that have been going on for some time. You've heard a lot of banter in the press, um, and uh, that this is happening or that's happening, but you haven't seen a deal yet. You haven't seen any final meeting set up yet between President Trump and uh, his uh, the Chinese leader, um, and uh, that's because uh, Bob Lighthizer is the most knowledgeable person in the world about this issue, about the concerns that you just expressed. He's fully aware of them. He warned about this years ago when they joined the WTO, which was a huge mistake um, on our part to support that. Uh, he gets it. He knows it. He's uh, going to make sure that uh, if we do get a deal, that it's a deal that's going to hold China accountable um, if they don't honor the agreement. He's very much aware, as is most of, most of the negotiating team, whether it's um, the hardcore uh, Lighthizer, uh, Navarro, Ross folks, um, or the Minchin, uh Kudlow folks, they all are keenly aware, and China's never lived up to their agreements um, in the past, um, and uh, that that's an issue going forward. So that's why you haven't seen any quick uh, deal come out of these discussions, because it has to be right, or there won't be one. Simple as that. Well, I do worry when Kudlow and um, Mnuchin get in the room. I know that uh, you know they're their uh worldview is shaped by uh wall street that has profited so greatly at the expense of main street but i want to uh, just play for the listeners and have you comment on it uh, a, a clip uh, from lighthizer appearing on meet the press with margaret brennan where he's sort of laying out uh, what the administration's goals are in these negotiations so so let's just put on the you know, on the table a little bit of background. China has a policy of 
of theft of intellectual property from American and other companies, from forced technology transfer and from cyber theft, and then state capitalism to buy up technology. Technology is the most important advantage that Americans have economically. We are innovators and we are excellent at technology. So you have a policy from China that's designed really to get at this technology and non-economic grounds, and it is one of the most important elements of the U.S. So the president said, do a study to us at USTR. We did a whole of government study. We spent eight months. We came out with a report. The president then put in place tariffs in order to get China to change this policy. It's extremely important that China does that, that it opens its market and that it takes these steps. I know the idea is to open up these uh, this huge Chinese market to American exporters. But, you know, Dan, we are never going to be able to match China or any of these other emerging economies on um, on wages and the cost of labor. Do we really have an upside with making an agreement with China just based on the, their promises to stop stealing our our technology and our intellectual assets? Well, listen, there's two different points that you're, you're discussing there, you're bringing up. One is us wanting them to open their markets. Um, quite honestly, uh, while that's important, I think that's secondary to all of the other issues that Ambassador Lighthizer discussed in that clip that you just played for me. If you go back and take a look at it, he spent most of his time talking about the intellectual property theft, the trade cheating, the forced technology transfer, the massive government subsidies, basically the predatory mercantilistic uh, economic practices and economic aggression that China has been waging on us and the world. Um, 90% of this deal is about stopping them from doing what they've been doing, uh, simply opening their markets. Nobody knows this better than Robert Lighthizer or the president. They both know this. Simply opening up their markets does not deal with the major 800-pound gorilla that needs to be dealt with, and that's China's massive economic aggression um, and intellectual property theft. And quite honestly, um, our government under Trump um, has come out with a, a security evaluation that basically doesn't consider them to be partners anymore. All right? I love that. They're strategic adversaries. Um, I was uh, president at, at a dinner that this Coalition for a Prosperous America had uh, a couple of weeks ago in Washington. We awarded American Trade Hero Awards to Robert Lighthizer, uh, Senator Rubio, and Senator Tammy Baldwin. And they all got up and spoke to a room of about uh, 100-plus people, um, CEOs from around the country that are part of our coalition. And uh, they were very, very clear about the China threat. Um, and uh, the primary issue is, is not opening our, their markets to us. That needs to happen. Believe me, that needs to happen so that we can make things here and ship them there. Um, and, and they have tremendous barriers to that. But more importantly than that is the attack that they've been waging and the trade war they've been waging on the United States in particular uh, for some 20 years now. And uh, Senator Rubio actually defined China as the enemy which I thought was quite enlightening and quite stark in terms of the description, something I haven't heard any politician really say publicly before. 
And that's, uh, you can actually find that on Facebook if you want to look for it. I disagree with Marco Rubio on many things, but on uh, his identification or, uh, of China as a strategic geopolitical foe that we should not be enriching, I could not agree more. I've got a clip here from Marco Rubio. I think he was appearing on, uh, on Fox talking with Martha McCallum. And he was uh, he was he was just outlining uh, the real threat that uh, f- uh, China poses and how badly they've abused their entrance into the WTO and and our trade agreement with them. We have a huge trade problem with China. It's structural. It's not just how much they buy from us. It's it's what they do to our companies. They force our companies to turn over intellectual property secrets. You know, you can't do business in China unless you do that. If you can do it at all. Meanwhile, their companies can do whatever they want here. Okay, that's what's got to be fixed because that's long term and it's problematic. ZTE is a is a cell phone and technology company. They got caught violating the Iran deal and they got caught violating the Iran sanctions in North Korea. Okay, they got hit with a billion dollar fine and they were told they had to fire the employees who did that. You know what they did? They didn't do it. They lied. They didn't fire those employees. They gave them a bonus. They tried to cover that up as well, like they tried to cover up the violation. So now we hit them and said, fine, you can't buy our semiconductors anymore. And that put them out of business. That's a good move. That's what we need to be doing when people are violating these things. But now it appears that some are saying, well, let's find them again and let's make them change the board of directors. That's the same deal they broke already once. And they, in fact, did that. Uh, The president let him back in. And I guess what I'm trying to get at here, Dan, is, uh, you know, we're signing a trade agreement based on a promise from China uh, to stop, you know, stealing our intellectual property and and, um, hacking our um, our uh, trade secrets uh, in order to gain access to the market where I'm not sure that we're going to be able to to really benefit that greatly. I know it's a huge market, but they will always be able to undercut us on uh, their labor costs, which are the number one cost of any goods or service. So and and on top of that, they're challenging us militarily. So if if it were up to me, I would say. Start treating China as we used to uh, the old Soviet Union. We certainly would have never uh, entered into a massive trade deal that would have enriched the Soviet Union so they could build more missiles to point at us. Well, you know, you're absolutely right. And I think more and more people, as witnessed by Senator Marco Rubio's uh, complete change in in view of uh, trade, and particularly trade with China and the threat of China, uh, more and more people, more and more leaders in this country uh, are understand that, see that um, there's real talk of disengagement, which is uh, a complete disengagement, which is not an easy thing to do, but it does demonstrate that people have had it. They, enough is enough. Uh, one of my favorite catchphrases that I tweet with all the time, um, we've had enough of this uh, and, and China's not to be trusted. And, you know, there's nobody that uh, knows this better than Bob Lighthizer and President Trump. Uh, and there's other team, team members like Peter Navarro and Wilbur Ross. They get it. Um, but at the same time, you know, we are interconnected in this world, so we've got to work to, to come up with a deal, if possible, that deal, deals not just with, okay, the promises, but also what is going to be the consequence of you not living up to the promises like you never do and never have in the past. There has to be real consequences. It has to be immediate. It can't be something that's drug out for months or years while people argue about it. 
Um, and, and I think that's all part of the negotiations that are going on. So we've got to, based upon my knowledge of people like Bob Lighthizer and what drives them, and he's not just an economic patriot, he is a true American patriot, um, and, and so is the president. Um, based upon my knowledge of, of, of where they're at and their thinking, um, you know, we're either going to get a strong deal or there won't be a deal. If there's no deal, there's going to be tariffs, and the tariffs probably be as big or bigger than they are today. Um, and I think the Chinese know that. And I don't think they're in a real position to, to uh, you know, be able to undermine that process um, because at the end of the day, as has already been demonstrated, whether tariffs get placed on Chinese goods or not is, is, is at the discretion of the president and, his, and Robert Lighthizer and people like them. And, there are, and people, would, are there are people in Congress that are trying to take that authority away, and I can only imagine that they're, they're acting at the behest of uh, you know of the globalists on Wall Street, you know Dan. When I was growing up in Atlanta, Georgia, there were three major auto plants. There was um, GM Doraville, a Ford uh, plant in Hapeville, and a, another GM plant in uh, in Lakewood in South Atlanta. And I knew a lot of the uh, a lot of my friends' uh, fathers worked at those plants. Uh, they made a good living there. They were able to provide for their family on a single income. You know, a decent middle class lifestyle they were able to take uh, you know a vacation once a year and uh, buy a new car occasionally and, and you know have a dignified retirement and these uh, these globalists told us that you know if we would sign NAFTA and enter into the globalist regime that um, it would benefit the United States within about a decade all three of those plants were gone those families uh, you know lost a, a good means of uh, support. All of those jobs went down to Mexico. This was, you know, uh, under NAFTA. And I know you come from an industry in the steel industry that was uh, just hammered by uh, globalization. Um, my, I guess the point I'm trying to get at, we've got 50 states in this country. We've got abundant national resources, natural resources. Um, we've got a good workforce. Uh, what... I, explain to me why I shouldn't be an isolationist, a, a trade restrictionist when it comes to these matters. Well, listen, uh, the trading system, global trading system has turned into a colossal failure for the United States. Um, we have a accumulated trade deficit in goods approaching 17 plus trillion dollars since 1990. $17 trillion plus since 1990. Which, you All know, right, I always wondered if there wasn't some connection. Because if you look at our trade deficits and our national debt, they almost exactly mirror each other. Well, I, I can't speak to that, Jim. Uh, but what I can say to you is that um, the whole it, – it's generally accepted now by just about anybody – who uh, is not uh, arguing for the sake of arguing? It's generally accepted that NAFTA was a failure, that it did none of the things that it said it was going to do, and that uh, put it, letting China become a permanent favored nation trading status country that allowed them to get into the WTO. Um, that was all done with the idea that someday, as China gets to be more economically 
successful, they'll become more democratic, they'll be more like us, they'll be an open free market. It's almost unanimous today that that mindset was a total failure. Okay? Now, it wasn't that way 15 years ago or 10 years ago. We've been fighting this battle, educating people for a long time now. David against um, Goliath. And, and it, thanks to President Trump, it's now come to the point where people can't deny the utter failure of that whole approach. And uh, so th- those are the good things that are going on. And we can thank President Trump and his people he surrounded himself with on this issue for getting that message out. Of course, China uh, and their president made it uh, a little easier when they came out with their 2025 proposal and said that they were going to dominate the world. They weren't interested in being a partner with anybody. They used the words dominate. They're going to dominate all the industries of the future. And that just drove things home even harder. And having a president now that's willing to stand up and say, enough's enough, we're not going to take it anymore, um, has allowed the, the, many of the multinational companies who were part of the effort to, to develop China's economy uh, to the point that it is today um, at our expense, it now allows them to be able to say, listen, okay, um, we need to work better uh, with the, with this president, and we need to, to uh, accept the fact that this whole approach was a failure, and we need to move in a different direction with respect to China. And even most recently, you have Jamie Dimon, this, the chairman and CEO of uh, uh, J.P. Morgan uh, Bank, um, come out and basically say the president's right to go after China. That was stunning. Uh, and, and that's a big switch for Jamie. Um, I personally know that's not always the, the view that he's had, certainly not publicly anyway. Now, he may not be a fan of terrorists, but he gets it with respect to China, that they are an existential threat to the future, not only of our country and our leadership in the world, but to the world itself. Um, and, it's, and it's time for all the other nations of the world to come together and say, enough, enough. Quit selling your soul for a few shekels. You know, you talked about uh, we've been fighting this battle for a long time, and you've been a, a real leader in this field. You wrote, you wrote your book uh, on manu- American manufacturing back in 2015, um, really giving the broad outlines of how we need to return America to a major manufacturing uh, power and, and reclaim our preeminence in these, uh, these, these industries. Uh, how much... Um, Money has the steel industry invested in America since the Trump administration uh, reimposed these steel tariffs? Well, listen, uh, <laughs> the the steel industry, of which I've been a part of, is really the canary, one of the canaries in the coal mine. This whole China situation, okay, and so we became champions on on this trade distortion, on um, trade distorting practices very early on, out of necessity. Uh, but it's happened to other industries. Uh, since President Trump stood up for the American steel industry, its workers, the American middle class, the aluminum industry, um, the U.S. steel industry led by Nucor, my, uh, uh, which I am chairman emeritus of and uh, worked for for over 32 years and was the CEO and chairman of uh, for 13 years, um, is leading the way. And, and we're talking uh, on the part of Nucor alone, billions of dollars 
five, six billion dollars of investments. Then you had U.S. Steel's billions of investments and uh, other steel companies, Steel Dynamics, um, and even some foreign owned entities, uh, from Indian Steel, uh, uh, producers have, have now taken up uh, and restarted operations in the United States and invested more billions of dollars. Uh, we're, we're talking well in excess of $10 billion, creating high-paying jobs. Um, the multiplier effect on a steel manufacturing job in this country is somewhere between 7 to 10 to 1. So for every one steel worker's job, whether it be at Ducor or U.S. Steel, um, there's seven to ten other supporting jobs that grow, come about because of that. And in my book, I make the case that, listen, people said for decades that uh, we didn't need to be makers of things. We didn't need to be manufacturers. We could just be a services-oriented country. And that's that was baloney. That was complete garbage. Um, and we saw that culminate with the Great Recession. And what we have to realize is that, you know, it's the manufacturers that make things from Mother Earth that provide the need for services to begin with. They add value. And, and, and so the service sector thrives if we have a strong manufacturing sector. If we don't have a strong manufacturing sector, if we're not makers of things, we end up with one financial bubble after another. And if you recall reading my book, you will, I, I laid out all the financial bubbles we've had since the 90s because people trying to make something out of nothing. Uh, culminating with the massive uh, derivative scam uh, that prompted the Great Recession and the collapse of uh, Lehman Brothers and others. And with this uh-huh. huge rise in this financial industry, we've got some of our best and brightest who normally would have gone into productive enterprise just sitting around boardrooms trying to figure out how to chisel people out of a you know a, a point or two of of more of what they make you know when i go shopping um usually it's at home depot i always try to uh, look for american made and as much as i possibly can buy american made and my whole life i have made a point of buying um american large appliances and cars and everything else but i've noticed in lately in home depot samsung and lg are displacing um, uh, Whirlpool and uh, and General Electric appliances. There's almost no GE or uh, or Whirlpool appliances left in there. It's all Samsung and LG. So the question I'm trying to get to is, you know, we we protected uh, steel industry and it was a obvious and huge success. Could that template uh, be? you know, used to protect other industries? I haven't seen the price of steel go through the roof. Well, you know, there were some short, short-term short large increases in steel pricing, but it, after the uh, uh, the hedge buying and all that stuff and, 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 and settled itself down, steel pricing actually is now back below where it was prior to the tariff stone end, but way above the pricing that we saw when steel was being dumped here. Um, and, and the lesson learned there is, um, you know, we have a globally competitive industry. We have a globally competitive marketplace. Um, all we're looking for is a level playing field to compete and win on. But and they don't. They don't. The they don't have a level playing field. They engage in predatory practices where they dump and they run our our whole sectors of the economy out of business, and then they return to 
You're right about that, Jim. But what the point we were talking about the steel industry is right. an example. The steel industry has been given a closer to level playing field now because of what the president did on those 232 tariffs. And you're asking me if similar things would help other industries. Exactly. And the answer is yes. Okay. Once you do things that, that force the trade cheaters to, to, to be honest and to stop cheating, preventing them from doing that, preventing them from inflicting their predatory practices um, on, on our economy and the co- companies in, in, in our country, uh, they can and will be successful because we have great workforce, because we have a great education system, because we have a great country, because we have a great financial system, and, and, and we have the resources to do this. The only reason why you read in the paper about, oh, we don't have rare earth resources anymore, it's not because they're not in the ground, it's because China's predatory pricing practices put them all out of business, and they can't, it, they can't afford to dig it out of the ground and make a, make a buck at it. All, these, all those resources are here. The human resources, the material resources, natural resources, financial resources, the laws that we have, there's no reason why America should not continue to be strong going into the future. And that's what the president is doing with his four-point economic plan that's designed to to improve our global competitiveness with tax reform, trade reform, regulatory reform, and energy reform. And it's working and if it wasn't for the Federal Reserve getting way ahead of itself and raising interest rates, we'd still be hitting a 3% GDP rate in growth every quarter. They've now decided that they were wrong, and they settled down, and they're backing off. And, uh, you know, my take is that you're going to see strong economic growth in this country going forward, and the president's plan is working. And he's, he's the first president since Ronald Reagan to understand what's really going on in the world and saying we're going to stop the gamemanship, we're going to stop the cheating, we're going to, we've had enough, and we're not going to take it anymore. We want the world to prosper, but not at our expense. We want to be part of the prosperous growth. And we have a great country, we have a great economy, but there are issues that we have to deal with, and our number one adversary is China, and everybody knows it. Everybody in the world knows. Dan, we've Everybody. got about a minute left, and I want to—I want you to tell the listeners a little bit about a coalition for a prosperous America, so they can be part of this effort to make America great again in the uh, in the area of manufacturing, farming, and um, and uh, labor. I'd be happy to, and I encourage you to go to all of your listeners to go to prosperousamerica.org, learn all about us. We are a powerful coalition of manufacturers, workers, farmers, and ranchers. We represent the interests of 4.1 million households and growing. Our board and membership includes Republicans, Democrats, independents, conservatives, and progressives. And what we stand for is a national trade strategy to eliminate the trade deficit, create good-paying jobs, and achieve broadly shared prosperity without surrendering our sovereignty, the environment, food safety, we advocate for trade and track tax strategies that promote manufacturing and agricultural growth, produce jobs, and increase incomes. God bless Dan, America. Dan uh, D'Amico is uh, the author of American Made, Why Making Things Will Return Us to Greatness. You can find it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Dan, thanks for joining us. Hold on the line. Thank you, Jim.
I've been working at Santa's workshop for a long time and thought I'd seen it all. That was until I learned that when you add Xfinity Mobile to Xfinity Internet, you can save hundreds on your wireless bill. When you add Xfinity Mobile to Xfinity Internet, you can get a powerful Internet experience and nationwide coverage on the most reliable network. Choose the data option that's right for you. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Based on root metrics by IHS Markets Root Score Reports 2H 2020 of four mobile networks. The N-OLED display in the Cadillac Escalade has 38 total diagonal inches of color display. So why do we give it a curve, too? I guess you could say we like to bend the rules. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving.